Nearly a year to the day since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the bloody conflict has cost tens of thousands of lives and shows no signs of stopping. Every day we continue to pay, to pay with lives. Pain and tears for bringing victory closer. Slava Ukraine. As the grim anniversary is marked around the world, Ukraine's allies are wondering how we got here and, crucially, where things go next. Our special correspondent, Patrick Coburn, has spent decades reporting from the front lines of conflict zones, including as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East, the US and Moscow during Putin's early days. In this week's episode of the iPodcast, He's joining us to share his reflections on the reasons for Putin's decision to invade, the implications of the conflict on the global political landscape, and what the future for Ukraine could hold. But first, here's Patrick's overview of the most critical moments of the past 12 months. Patrick, we have some questions for you from our readers. But first of all, I wonder if we can just sort of zoom out a little bit and look at the conflict as a whole. We're obviously a a year into the war in Ukraine. What do you think are the most significant moments throughout the conflict so far? The first would definitely be the strange, even uh, mad decision by Putin to invade Ukraine. People sometimes say now, that everybody thought that the Russians would take Kiev. I never met anybody or read anything by anybody of authorities saying he would do anything like that. Most of the Russian elite thought this was an extremely bad idea. Remember, Ukraine didn't believe it would happen either. They thought the Americans were hyping it. And they didn't think it would happen because it was ridiculous that an army, you know, let's say, certainly under 200,000, probably a bit over 100,000, could take a place as big as Ukraine, 44 million population, the second biggest country in Europe, two and a half times the area of the UK. This was never on unless the uh, Ukrainian government collapsed and the uh, Ukrainian army threw away its guns. So that was a pretty critical moment. You know, there are important moments of they were sort of inevitable. NATO came in to back Ukraine, important but inevitable. The Ukrainians fought back. I always thought they would. I thought significant that having made this big failure, Putin then didn't seem to be able to raise his game. Mm. He didn't begin mass mobilization, or partial mobilization it's called, until 21st of September. So for a lot of the time, Russia, although three times as big in population as Ukraine, was actually outnumbered on the battlefield. Mm. When we had the uh, Ukrainian advance on Kharkiv, They punched their way through the Russian front and they found there were practically no regular Russian soldiers. That was pretty amazing. And that was part also of another really major development, which is the discovery that the Russian military was much weaker than anybody expected. Mm. Remember, a lot of people would be talked about how, you know, if Russia attacked Poland or uh, any of the East European states in Soviet times, uh, the question is, would they be on the Rhine? So Russia immediately had a sort of diminution of its status as a great military power, which is fighting to regain. 
I wonder if there's a point at which Putin realised he was not going to be able to go in and simply conquer Ukraine, that this was going to be more difficult than he'd thought. Well, I would have thought it on day one, you know. <laughs> it is one of the great sort of mistakes of, of modern times, you know. I mean, the only parallel of which I have experienced is Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait in 1990. Mm. You know, it should have been obvious he wasn't going to get away with it. There would be an enormous reaction from the Americans and, and others. He didn't see that. Why didn't he see it? I think leaders at the top, particularly authoritarian leaders, are also often particularly ill-informed because, they're, you know, maybe they're surrounded by courtiers. They certainly are filled with hubris about their own wisdom. I remember actually it was a Soviet uh, diplomat who, who knew the Iraqi leadership very well who said to me, the problem is with those guys around Saddam that the only safe position is to be 10% tougher than the boss. You know, you, if he says, let's invade Kuwait, you say, and why not Saudi Arabia as well? You don't say, that's a real bad idea, boss, because you may pay for that with your head. I mean, Putin doesn't execute people like that, but there seems to have been a sort of collection of cronies that was amazingly ignorant of what was going to happen if they staged an invasion. One thing that I wanted to ask you, from what you've written, I get the sense that you perhaps feel there's been less sort of Ukrainian victories and more just Russian losses. Is it that Ukraine are doing well or is it just that Russia are doing badly? What's your read on this? I think there has been, you know, the Ukrainians have done well. They did mobilise. They have fought hard. They are united. When it actually comes to battlefield successes around Kharkiv or Kherson, you know, these weren't big military victories. They showed how weak the Russians were because the Russians retreated in both cases. You know, usually you can tell big military victories by the fact there's a, a big catch of prisoners by the winning side. We don't see that. We see claims of very high Russian casualties. May be true, but you know, one just doesn't know. And Russia is a very big country. A lot of the reporting tends to be selective. It's not that it's untrue, but it tends to sort of report the good news. People tend to forget that the Ukrainians do something successful, like when they uh, blew up the Kirsch Bridge, when they had uh, successes around Kharkiv and Kherson. The Russians responded with this barrage of ground-to-ground -ground missiles and drones against the Ukrainian infrastructure. Now, that isn't entirely new. The Americans did exactly the same thing in the, against the Iraqi infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, in 1991. And one of the big changes in warfare in the last 30 years that it used to be the, sort of the Americans who had a monopoly of precision-guided missiles. Now, lots of people can do that. You could get a missile to a, an exact place on a target, rather like you can get a, an Uber car to go to an exact address. That's rather changed the face of warfare. So the Russians could retaliate like that and do a great deal of damage, put a lot of Ukraine into the dark. But then again, there are things that the Ukrainians can do. And this is the way warfare works, which is they can start building big, big country walls around their electrical substations. So when anybody seems to have a successful ploy like that, the other side can think of some way of frustrating it. And think of something else to do by escalating the war. And that's the pattern that we've seen. But you think that perhaps some of the coverage has been too optimistic about Ukraine's fortunes? Yes, I think so. 
but nobody is close to winning a decisive victory. You know, the thing about war, any war, whether it's in Iraq and Afghanistan, I remember the Americans in 2001 thinking they'd won a decisive victory in, uh, and defeated the Taliban in Kabul. But, you know, go to Kabul now and who's ruling the place? The Taliban in Iraq, you know, mission accomplished. The famous, much-regretted words of President George W. Bush turn out mission not accomplished. You know, so once you start on a war, it really is a gamble. And each side tries to think of something nasty they can do to the other side. And therefore, you have continual es escalation. And during that time, if the war goes on long enough, you have destruction. Mm. Physical destruction of electricity. And no electricity means water doesn't work, sewage doesn't work, factories can't work. You have some of your ablest people leaving the country. This is not something for which any amount of money can really compensate. So I hope that uh, Ukraine doesn't end up, like so many Middle East countries, as being uh, progressively destroyed. The thing that Ukraine are calling for recently is fighter jets. What's your read on how significant it would be and whether it's ever going to be possible or whether it's just a non-starter for the West? Well, the British Minister of Defence was saying they wouldn't be sending jets because it takes about five years to train somebody. Mm. And they also, every jet requires about 200 people to maintain it, and they aren't going to send 200 technicians into Ukraine to do so. But leaving that aside, one thing that has happened in this war is that neither side is actually using fixed-wing uh, aircraft much. You know, the Russian Air Force was much feared, and Pentagon said how powerful it was and so forth. We haven't actually seen these planes over Ukraine, because they're frightened of being shot down. I think a few planes on the Ukrainian side won't change very much, because on the whole, air defenses seem, for the moment, to have made it very difficult for fixed-wing aircraft, which are vastly expensive, after all, to live in the sky. So I don't think it would change that much. Of course, it would be symbolic, I suppose, of NATO's resolve to support Ukraine. But I suspect also, you know, people are always desperate in wars to find a golden bullet, some weapon that will ensure that they are going to win. You know, the British thought that about the tank in the First World War. The Germans thought it about poison gas and later unrestricted U-boat uh, warfare. The same sort of thing happened with V-1s and V-2s in uh, the Second World War. It seldom works that way. You know, a new weapon used, it has an effect, but the effect diminishes over time and is never quite as great as its proponents imagine or declare. So I think that it's understandable that they feel that way. But I doubt if it's if there's a decisive weapon that's really going to lead to the defeat of the Russians or the Ukrainians, for that matter. Well, I think it's fair to say it's certainly not where Russia expected to be a year on. Where do we go from here? How do you see the next year unfolding? I think that, like any war, you know, war is sort of is such a gamble. It usually turns out differently, certainly from the way that people who began it imagined. I'm very suspicious of predictions. You know, you can listen to stuff or read stuff from distinguished uh, military analysts saying it's all over for Russia, they can't do it. But uh, every war I've covered has been up and down. I mean, every war one knows about has been up and down. And it's a mistake to join up the dots too early. I don't think one can do that yet. Things that one needs to know are can the Russians get their act together? As I said before, the decision to invade Ukraine was a tremendous blunder, 
and then they went on blundering throughout the year. They were short on troops. They didn't reorganize themselves to set up a mass army. You know, in Soviet times, they used to, they had a mass army, vast number of conscripts. Everybody had been in the army. They had people who were trained. They don't have it anymore, so they rely on mercenary groups like the Wagner Group and Chechens. And the reason the uh, Putin did this, that he wanted a war on the cheap. You know, the whole Putin regime was basically, you know, so long as the population was politically passive, the government left them alone, and they sort of didn't criticize the government too much. And in many ways, Putin's regime, people talk about it as if it was quintessentially Russian, but actually it's very like any of the other great sort of oil producers, that you have a government with enormous revenues from natural resources. Often, these governments are not very competent at actually doing anything, but that doesn't become apparent for a long time. And you see that not just in Russia, but you see it in Saudi Arabia, one used to see it in Libya, under Gaddafi, you know, you see it in the other Gulf oil states. I think that one of the dangers is that this becomes a ceaseless war, what people call the endless wars in the Middle East, that Americans would announce they'd won in Afghanistan or Iraq, or somebody or the Israelis thought they were going to achieve their ends in Lebanon, and it just doesn't happen. Does this war just go on and on? That's a crucial question we need to find out. Rishi Sunak, I mean, the British Prime Minister, was saying when uh, Zelensky was in London that, you know, he expected a Ukrainian victory this uh, year. Now, that may be just uh, the sort of thing you say to a visiting leader, but I don't think too many other people expect that. From expert analysis like this to reporting on the ground in Ukraine, Eyes journalists have been relentless in their coverage of the war and its refugees over the past year. But we can't do it without you. If you support what we do at the iPaper, consider subscribing. There's a deal on right now with 50% off a digital subscription and our weekend newspaper. Enjoy 12 months for $59.99 or try three for $19.99. Now I'm keen to share some of your questions with Patrick. The first one is from Jeff Forshaw and he asks, can Ukraine hold out the war until Russia runs out of men and artillery? Well, you know, Russia, you know, is the most popular state in Europe. So it has enough uh, men of military age. Can it mobilise them? That's a rather different question. Because they don't have a system that can quickly train people. Can Ukraine hold out? Well, probably, yes. I mean, it's been supplied by all the NATO states with a vast amount of uh, equipment. But equipment is never quite enough. It's a smaller state than Russia, a third or a quarter of the population. And it's under pretty intense pressure. But yeah, I think it probably can hold out. I find it difficult to see them defeating the Russians as of this moment, and difficult to see the Russians defeating them. There is a morale difference as well, isn't there? You know, we mentioned population size, but by all accounts, Russian troops pretty low on morale and Ukrainians feeling very motivated. How much will that play into things? Well, it does play into things, you know, but I worry a bit when I watch television and you see Ukrainian soldiers, how do you feel? Oh, hooray, we're going on for victory, you know. So, you know, you are soldiers for that sort of thing. Of course they say that. Civilians say that sort of thing. But War really grinds people down, you know, grinds them down because they sit in the dark because they can't go to university to get to, I mean, their children can't get educated or they can't get educated. They don't have 
a job, and they see years in front of them in the army, their whole sort of lives disappearing. You know, these are sort of really big real-life pressures, and just saying morale is high, you know, who knows? Things are never that simple. It's very difficult to detect, to tell exactly what the state of morale is. I'll move on to a question from Jeff Cox, who says that he's a great admirer of your work and wants to know more about the picture inside Russia. He says, I have long wondered what the Russian people think about the war. How much do they believe of Putin's propaganda? And to what extent are they actually brainwashed? So it picks up on some of the things that we were just talking about there. First of all, as I said before, difficult to tell because in an autocratic state, though Russia, one should be a little careful here, because Russia is not like Iraq under Saddam Hussein when people used to be terrified of accidentally spilling coffee on the front page of the newspaper, which always had a picture of Saddam. You don't have a, sort of that state of terror, but you, you, know, you have an autocratic state, which is very easy to end up in jail if you oppose the powers that be. There used to be various uh, outlets, Ecomosphere Radio and uh, certain newspapers, which had, uh, you know, were fairly sort of free range. Some newspapers were fairly free ranging. I used to write for some of them. And that's all sort of disappeared now. So difficult to know what people think of it. Putin controls, you know, the main sources of information. How far are people persuaded that they have no choice but to fight? You know, the polls tend to show that the older people are in favor of fighting. Well, yes, but uh, they aren't planning to do the fighting themselves. People of military age, men of military age, are a bit less enthusiastic. But I think one should never sort of bet on morale collapsing. On You know, what does morale collapsing look like? You know, they, you want conscripts. You don't sort of go up to them and say, would you like to serve in the army? You say, you know, be here at a certain time and you get trained. Everybody's under orders. So whatever the state of morale, maybe you can maintain a large fighting force. So, you know, what is the state of opinion within the elites? From what one hears anecdotally, pretty negative about the war. But again, now the war is on, they don't have much choice. So I don't see a sort of complete sort of demoralization and collapse unless there's some sort of tremendous battlefield reverse. Mm. And we haven't seen that yet. Well, this question sort of follows on from that. This is from John and Elaine Gherkin. They said, do you think that Putin could survive if he suffered a number of further defeats with extensive conscript casualties? And if he is in jeopardy in terms of his position at the top, who would be his biggest threats, they ask? The answer is I don't know. Most regimes these days are quite good at protecting themselves, particularly, after all, Putin is a secret policeman by training. Probably they can protect themselves very difficult to move against them unless it's sort of their own security forces. They have a long tradition of keeping their eye on their own people. So I don't think that is, you know, that is likely to be overthrown. But, you know, but as I said earlier, putches and coups succeed by surprise. So it's always the blow that nobody sees coming, which actually works. You know, but when one looks at the Middle East, looks at Assad... You know, he's still there in Syria. Saddam Hussein lasted a long time until the invasion. You know, it's really quite difficult to overthrow people who've got multiple layers of security. So I, I don't really suspect that's going to happen. And in terms of 
any possibility of a coup. You say it's unlikely, but you mentioned that if there was to be any kind of pushback, it might be most likely within his security network. Is that what you think? That's where people tend to be vulnerable if you have a coup. It's those who are meant to be protecting the big boss and the inner elite. If they change sides, that's uh, decisive. But, you know, one's advancing far into speculation here. There's no reason to suppose that that's going to happen yet. I mean, the Russian economy, yes, has been badly damaged, but people don't really feel that. You know, you luxury shops in central Moscow, they're shut, but, you know, people in the provinces didn't really shop there anyway. That may have less impact than people imagine. The Russians have succeeded in sort of setting up a new source supply lines for their, their sale of their oil. They get a bit less money for it, but they still get a lot of money. It's uh, China and India... Indian refineries, but all over the world, you know, there are strange sort of aging tankers that are suddenly filled with Russian oil, and then Russian oil is blended with some other kind of oil and uh, so forth. So you have a vast sort of black grey market has developed, which has taken it out of the hands of the people who traditionally dealt with it. Next, we have a question from James Lewis. He asks whether you think that the West supplying Ukraine with weapons will only prolong the war. He wonders if Russia will just refuse to lose no matter what the cost might be. And we had another question along a similar thread, which is whether a full Russian withdrawal from Ukraine, including Crimea, is at all realistic. I don't think a full withdrawal is realistic. After all, you know, they not only have Crimea and part of the, most of the Donbass, but they've annexed other provinces. But certainly Crimea, I don't think uh, Putin could withdraw from that. It could be too much of a defeat. So I don't think that's going to happen. Supplying Ukraine with arms, well, perfectly reasonable. NATO should uh, do so. But uh, what if the Russians just don't withdraw? Well, that's sort of the situation we're facing, which means we're facing a sort of endless war in Eastern Europe and one that may sort of escalate and spread. It's already escalating and spreading in different ways. And if a full Russian withdrawal is pretty much out of the question, does that mean that Ukraine are going to then have to make territorial concessions? And if so, what could you see them possibly considering? They're obviously taking a very hard line on this at the moment. Well, they're not being offered anything. You know, Russia hasn't said produce any concessions, so why on earth should they do so? We do know sort of earlier last year, a few months into the war, there were talks in Istanbul between the Russians and Ukrainians, which got quite far with the Ukrainians sort of not saying they're giving up the Ukraine, but saying let's sort of discuss it later, sort of kicking it into the long grass. Various compromises that seemed feasible at that moment. Are they feasible anymore? You know, one of the problems about this war, with any war, is after a certain amount of time so much blood has been spilt and... uh, there's been so much destruction that people say, well, yeah, we're not going to uh, stop the war until we've beaten the other side, you know. That's what, you know, the British and the French felt in the the First World War. The Germans likewise. There comes a certain moment where leaders who started the war and maintained it simply can't say, cut our losses, we're not going to win here, everybody go home. People say, no, you know, no, we've gone this far, you know, we can't go back. What might just turn out not to have been feasible, I think the chance was much against it early last year. I don't think that that's uh, probably not feasible anymore. We've got another question on the outcome of the conflict here from David Kappa, who asks, 
given the vast population difference between Russia and Ukraine, if nothing else, how did the West ever think this would end well? And I'll just add, do they think that this will end well? Or is this just a show of optimism? Yeah, it's an astute question. And I think that they they genuinely don't know. They were surprised when they, they said Russia was going to invade on the week before. But earlier than that, you know, Russian invasion seemed such a very bad idea from everybody's point of view, particularly the Russians, they didn't expect it. The war's gone a bit differently. Ukrainians have done better than they expected. I think they don't know. You know, can Russia get its resources together because it's a bigger power, more population? We haven't seen that yet, but perhaps it will happen. They keep on making these sort of optimistic announcements and announcing how united they are, as they sort of, you know, and there's some just the justification for that. But they don't know what the end will be. You know, you have people like General Millet, the American Joint Chiefs of Staff, so we're saying, well, you know, we should over the winter, beginning of winter, we should have negotiations because nobody's going to uh, win this war. The Ukrainians won't be able to advance, and nor will the very far, nor will the Russians. So there are important people who feel that. But you know, there's still in Washington, in Kiev, in Moscow, there are plenty of people who still think there are things to be gained on the battlefield. We can still tip the balance. We can still do better. Maybe they're right. I think they sort of tend to underestimate the danger of what is happening, of having a, a sort of endless escalating war in a large part of Europe. So just finally, your sort of overarching reflection is that we may well be here in a year's time talking about this conflict again, that this is going to be a very long-term situation. It's pointing in that direction you know, there are so many considerations come into it. Once, you know, war is just a tremendous gamble by everybody that you can't quite tell how things are going to work out. The risks are very great, I think greater than people imagine, and are growing. Wars naturally tend to escalate as each side tries to maneuver and find a way of winning it. Could it suddenly end? Yes, that's possible. I mean, it seems to me the chances are against it quite far, but, but it is feasible, it is possible. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us and sharing your decades of experience. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to Patrick's newsletter, Dispatches, which delivers cutting-edge foreign news analysis, underexplored stories and fascinating international history right into your inbox every Friday. We'll be back next week with another episode featuring our special correspondent, Patrick Strudwick, who is taking us inside the shadowy world of chemsex parties and the unique criminal elements which have emerged from this scene. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all of our reporting on Ukraine and the rest of the world at inews.co.uk. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall on Instagram and now on TikTok at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.